Hello, you're listening to the Diplomats Asia Geopolitics Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Putz, coming to you from Washington, D.C. And I'm your co-host, Ankit Panda, also in Washington, D.C. Good to join you, Katie. How are you doing? Doing good. It's a beautiful, uh, beautiful fall week here in Washington. Uh, sort of. It's been a bit cold. But <laughs> let's uh, turn our attention to something that is heating up. Uh, it, uh, it strikes me that it's been a while since we have talked about the South China Sea on this podcast, uh, but it's certainly one of the granddaddy geopolitical issues in the region uh, and, and in recent weeks has certainly heated up, uh, though uh, that is maybe an underestimation. Uh, but let's just get into it, Ankit. You know, what has been happening in the South China Sea in the last couple of weeks, the last couple of months uh, that sort of prompts us to revisit it now? Yeah, so this is going to be familiar to, I think, longtime listeners of the Asia Geopolitics podcast. We're almost coming up on 10 years of this podcast, and uh, inevitably we find our way back to the South China Sea when tensions flare up. So the broader context here uh, goes back to, I think, August, uh, when the China Coast Guard, Chinese maritime law enforcement uh, vessels, along with China's maritime militia, uh, the so-called array of non uh, allegedly non-state uh, vessels that basically served the ends of Chinese national interest in the South China Sea began harassing the Philippines Coast Guard and Filipino fishermen uh, around Second Thomas Shoal, which is a submerged reef in the disputed Spratly Islands. Now, Second Thomas Shoal, while it is disputed, uh, while sovereignty is disputed, uh, I should note here that the 2016 arbitral tribunal ruling on the South China Sea disputes that was filed by the Philippines um, basically determined that China's maritime claims to the waters around uh, Second Thomas Shoal were illegitimate, uh, right? That ruling did not take any decision on sovereignty matters. That was not the ambit of that ruling, but it did con concern um, maritime uh, entitlements. And so... As, as some listeners might know, uh, Second Thomas Shoal is particularly notable as the site of the permanently positioned um, Filipino naval vessel Sierra Madre, which is famously marooned at Second Thomas Shoal. It ran aground deliberately. It is a commissioned vessel in the Philippines Navy. And so this has been a long-running source of tension between China and the Philippines, um, whereas uh, China tries to prevent the Philippines from basically providing um, resupplying the vessel uh, where uh, Filipino uh, armed forces are permanently based uh, as, a, as a means of asserting sovereignty to this feature. So that's that's kind of the background here. Um, the reason we're having this conversation now, Katie, is that things really did spike uh, in the final couple weeks in October. Um, notably, the um, Chinese Coast Guard uh, rammed a Philippine supply vessel uh, near Second Thomas Shoal. This was against the backdrop of other incidents in the South China Sea, not directly related to this, but, you know, there were Chinese aircraft that on October 29th fired flares in front of a Canadian military helicopter. There was uh, a flyby within 10 feet of an American B-52 bomber uh, in uh, in the South China Sea as well. Uh, so all of this, I think, points to a general flare-up. Uh, there's been some commentary that, you know, Maybe China's doing this because the United States is simply stretched a little bit too thin right now with crises in the Middle East and Ukraine, et cetera. I don't think that's necessarily well supported, given that these tensions have been simmering since August. So I think there's a lot to talk about here, you know, um, the risks of escalation, what the United States has done. But uh, it's certainly, I think, one of the more notable um, crisis flare ups in the South China Sea that we've seen in a while. Um, so I, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, a recent visit by the Japanese prime minister to the Philippines, which sort of, I think, is an interesting 
uh, event. Obviously, these countries have a bilateral relationship and both of these countries are U.S. allies. But it's interesting to watch the defense relationship between the two of them sort of progress. Uh, you know, we, we ran an article today in which one of our, our Japanese authors pointed out that uh, two Japanese papers sort of uh, said that you know, Japan and the Philippines are aiming to upgrade their relationship to a quote quasi alliance. Now, this is what the papers said, not not necessarily what anybody uh, officially said. Uh, but they have started negotiations on a reciprocal access agreement. Um, you know, maybe the uh, the simplest version of this question is: Is Beijing kind of shooting itself in the foot with these incidents and kind of pushing uh, other countries in in the region, some with claims to the South China Sea and some just sort of neighboring states like Japan? Is it sort of pushing them together in in a way uh, that that is honestly beneficial to the American alliance network and and sort of detrimental to China and its claims? Yeah, I think I think there is a lot of that. I would also point, of course, to Philippines, um, to domestic politics in the Philippines. Right, uh, the the fact that we've gone from Rodrigo Duterte now to Ferdinand Marcos Jr. has led to a substantial change in how Manila uh, approaches the South China Sea disputes, how Manila how Manila approaches the alliance with the United States, where we've seen the expanded Enhanced Defense Cooperation Act with the United States, which was agreed in 2014 by the Obama administration. Um, become a lot more um, realistic in its implementation uh, and sort of surge. And I think that also explains part of the story here with um, the Philippines' relations with Japan. Uh, now, for Tokyo, I think uh, there's a clear logic to this, which is allowing, um, bolstering the Philippines' capabilities, maritime domain awareness, uh, its own ability to maintain sovereignty, benefits the so-called rules-based order that Tokyo uh, supports uh, in, in the region, right? Japan has been a, a stalwart supporter of the 2016 Arbitral Tribunal ruling, sees uh, international law in particular as uh, an important tool uh, in the South China Sea disputes, and I think that's sort of coloring the broader logic here. Uh, but you're absolutely right that this is welcome news for Washington, which has been trying to more broadly network its alliances in the region. And so while um, this isn't going to lead to a trilateral sort of mm -hmm. Philippines-Japan-US alliance or anything like that, I think the United States certainly welcomes uh, these new uh, arrangements between its allies. So Japan and the Philippines getting closer together, uh, agreeing a reciprocal access agreement, uh, that is certainly not something that the United States will be uh, upset about at all. I think it's uh, very welcome. Um, let's let's go back to the the Philippines domestic uh, politics because that that was another question I thought uh, we should give some attention to is you know how much of what's currently happening do you think is rooted in that change between Duterte uh, and Marcos uh, or or is this uh, you know is it not related to that domestic change you know Duterte was. Uh, not interested in sort of enforcing the arbitral uh, decision in 2016, which I, I think that had been filed by the previous administration and then was was determined early in his administration. Uh, and then, you know, we have Marcos now. Uh, what what is, what are those dynamics like? Yeah, so uh, you know, Aquino, um, the predecessor to uh, Duterte, was very uh, assertive on Philippine um, maritime claims in the South China Sea, including by filing the arbitral tribunal ruling. Uh, Duterte, by contrast, uh, you know, was quite anti-American on a personal level, uh, and and there's an interesting tension here because the Philippines is one of the most pro-American countries in the entire world when it comes to public opinion, um, and. Arguably, the Philippines Armed Forces, uh, many of the bureaucrats in the Philippines' um, national um, bureaucracy are also quite pro-American, so they support the alliance. But when you have a president at the top that's openly 
resentful in many ways uh, of the United States that creates some tensions that we certainly saw uh, influencing the alliance in the Duterte years, right? Um, the, I mean, the alliance almost came to a rupture uh, before the United States um, under the Biden administration sort of stepped in and um, restored things. And and now uh, the U.S.-Philippine alliance is, is in a very different place. So uh, domestic politics matters, but um, also, I mean, this is a hot button kind of populist issue in the Philippines, uh, Chinese mm -hmm. sovereignty claims uh, in the South China Sea. So every time there is a flare-up like this, I think uh, it does generate a surge of support for um, Philippines-U.S., um, for the alliance more broadly. And it's also notable here that the United States has been pretty uh, open uh, in its support for the Philippines uh, in the uh, in the face of what it uh, what the State Department called PRC harassment uh, in the South China Sea. There was a statement issued by the State Department on October 22nd, the same day that a Philippines supply vessel was rammed, um, noting that the United States affirmed that Article 4 of the 1951 Mutual Defense Treaty extended to armed attacks on Philippine armed forces, public vessels, importantly, right? There's the, the Sierra Madre still a commissioned uh, vessel in the Philippines Navy, um, anywhere in the South China Sea, implying that if China were to attack the Sierra Madre or take steps beyond what it had already done, uh, that that might activate the alliance with the United States. So it's a, it's, it's a clear deterrence message. But also in that same statement, uh, the U.S. was careful in, I think, the language it chose because it noted that the Chinese Coast Guard and Maritime Militia, quote, violated international law by intentionally interfering with the Philippine vessel's exercise of high seas freedom of navigation. Now, interference with freedom of navigation, while not great, uh, is not an armed attack, uh, right? So there's a notable difference there. The U.S. was, I think, drawing something of a red line, you might say, uh, in terms of what actions would actually trigger American red lines in the alliance. Um, and maybe we should talk about that that next then, you know, how how easily can sort of these incidents, sort of the water cannons, the the near misses, uh, these little bumps at sea, how easily can these incidents really escalate into either open conflict or or something sort of a step in that direction? Does it come down to the incident itself or sort of the decisions uh, on on each side as to, to what happens? So. You know, there's already been uh, Philippine casualties. Uh, a few Philippines fishermen were actually killed um, by uh, a collision with a maritime militia vessel. Uh, and so the potential for escalation, I think, is is quite real, uh, especially when uh, you might have some of these maritime militia vessels potentially not respecting whatever rules of engagement might be there on the Chinese side, which might be better applied to the maritime law enforcement vessels. Uh, fortunately, nothing like that has happened yet where uh, we haven't seen a direct armed attack uh, in the sense that the alliance would be triggered and we would potentially have a very serious crisis on our hands. Um, but the potential is very much there. I think something else I want to note, though, Katie, it, it's been interesting to sort of observe all of this action in the South China Sea. At the same time, when we're starting to see a lot of positive signals in the U.S.-China official relationship, right? I mean, we're having this conversation mm -hmm. on November 3rd, Friday, and on Monday, the U.S. and China are about to have a, an official meeting in Washington on arms control, for instance. And at the Shangshan Forum recently in China, uh, senior PLA officials indicated that they were open to military crisis management talks with the United States, which had been suspended uh, deliberately since um, former Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan last year. So there's sort of two tracks of um, kind of trends happening here. You have uh, stepped up tensions in the South China Sea, um, unsafe aerial encounters, harassment of Philippines vessels, um, at the same time that we're beginning to see something of a diplomatic 
uh, rapprochement, uh, and the broader context here is the anticipated meeting between President Biden and President Xi at the APEC summit uh, coming mm -hmm. up um, in, uh, in just a couple weeks. So that, I think, raises the question about, um, you know, whether some of these dynamics are due to dynamics at the local level. Is the PLA Southern Theater Command, for instance, um, carrying out what it believes to be a, a broader mandate of kind of projecting Chinese power, defending Chinese claims that's somewhat detached from the broader diplomatic rapprochement? I just I just don't think we know, but I think it's an interesting uh, contrast. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because those are two sort of somewhat conflicting trends. But I think in a, a larger mindset, you know, when you have a crisis, then that is a good time to have crisis mechanisms that you work on. So, so you know, maybe it provides the excuse to work on these things in a way. Uh, but we shall see what happens Monday, and I'm sure we'll talk about it. Uh, do you have anything else to add before we, we let our listeners go for the day? Uh, not really. I mean, I think, uh, you know, this is something we're definitely going to keep our eye on. I'll be I'll be very curious to see uh, how the messaging that the United States has already publicly engaged in around uh, the particular harassment of the Philippines manifests during the Biden Xi meeting, if at all. Uh, you know, it would be very interesting mm -hmm. if we see Biden uh, issue a direct message to Xi Jinping on, um, you know, so-called red lines in the South China Sea when it comes to defending the interests of American allies and um, supporting freedom of navigation. The the return of sort of track two talks, I think, uh, sorry, track one talks, I think is really important, right? This this meeting that's about to take place on Monday is the first meeting of its kind since the Obama administration. So it's uh, it's really, it's I think, been an a interesting while. turn. Yeah, it has been a while. And so I think we're going to see potentially um, more data points on just how... Uh, how salient the South China Sea continues to be in the U.S.-China relationship, right? This used to be, of course, uh, the hot issue uh, towards the second term, uh, towards the second half of the second term of the Obama administration, and then kind of uh, the South China Sea um, remained important, but got sort of drowned out by the trade war and broader U.S.-China tensions under the mm -hmm. Trump administration. So now that we have this serious surge uh, of um, action around Scarborough Shoal and uh, second Thomas Shoal, uh, in the Spratleys, uh, I'll be I'll be curious to see if we see more indicators that the South China Sea is rising in salience once again. Well, we will certainly keep our eyes on this issue and the China-U.S. relationship. Uh, that's that's all for today to our listeners. Uh, as always, please uh, like and review our podcast wherever it is that you listen to it. Recommend it to your friends. And please don't hesitate to get in touch with Ankit or myself. Uh, we love taking your suggestions. Uh, and I guess have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Katie. Good chatting with you as always.